The Gospel of St. Matthew, chapter 5, verses 13 through 20. Jesus said, oh, I'm sorry. You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how can its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything, but is thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A city built on a hill cannot be hid. No one, after lighting a lamp, puts it under the bushel basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. I have come not to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth pass away, not one letter, not one stroke of a letter will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. Now, when Pastor Craig asked me to be with you this weekend, I kind of felt like Paul that we just heard in his letters to the Corinthians. And I came to you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. <laughs> of course, not really. For it was here at Lutheran Memorial that I gave my first sermon as a layperson long, long ago. But now, don't you go thinking, what's this Methodist doing here? <laughs> well, I was confirmed at Trinity Lutheran uh, in Mowbridge and had countless years of Sunday school perfect attendance there and at Redeemer Lutheran in McLaughlin. When I first came to Pier, I began to sing in the choirs of Lutheran Memorial and First Methodist. However, you had four tenors then, and they had but two, and Bev, who would become my wife, was one of the organists over there. So that's why I still worship over there. Enough introduction. We have a, a marvelous gospel uh, to deal with here today. Now, I'm not as good as Pastor Craig preaching is. I have to use notes, and I don't have his seminary background, so I have to go at these verses by studying deeply. Therefore, let's start by looking at the first part of verse 13 again. You are the salt of the earth. What does this 
salts of the earth really mean? We use that phrase all the time. But I think Jesus is actually talking about good, honest, humble, kind-hearted, hard-working people. Those, those fishermen were hard-working people. And aren't those the basic virtues of the people who call themselves Christians? Aren't they what we should have? But are we all at this salt-of-the-earth point in our lives? That's the first question for all of us today. Are we the salt of the earth? It's the second part of that verse that starts us wondering. Listen up. But if salt has lost its taste, how can its saltiness be restored? It isn't all good, good for anything, but is thrown out and trampled underfoot. Now, in our modern world, we use over 40 million tons of really cheap salt a year. It is so common, we don't even notice the countless salt shakers on a restaurant table when we walk in, do we? But back in Jesus' day, salt was very, very expensive. It was so precious that Roman soldiers were paid in salt. Their salt ration was called salaria. And that's where we get our word for salary today. Back then, too, slaves were bought and traded for salt. Have you ever heard the phrase, he's not worth his salt, talking about a laborer? And isn't it just the best spice that we have in the kitchen? But before refrigeration, it was used to preserve anything and everything. We personally have four, four ounces of it in our own bodies. And because Napoleon's soldiers returning from Moscow in that dead of winter didn't have any in their bloodstreams, their wounds wouldn't heal. And they died. So it is a very important essence of life. Wait a minute now. Our salt never goes bad. What's with this phrase? But if salt has lost its flavor. Well, back in Bible times in Israel, much salt was won from the Mediterranean Sea by evaporation and or mined near the Dead Sea. Thus, it got contaminated with lots of minerals and plants and animals, etc. So, it could easily go bad by oxidation and needed to be thrown away. Remember those basic Christian salt-of-the-earth virtues we all are supposed to have? Are we being contaminated by our society and its false god constantly swirling about us? Could we even be made salty again? Will we be thrown out and trampled underfoot? 
I, however, think Jesus is implying that we must be a different kind of people as Christians. We must be a people of pure, flavorful salt. Even the Greek word for salt used in this passage, halas, can also mean prudent. And that thought pushes us in another direction of goodness. For further on in Colossians 4, 6, it states, let your speech always be prudent, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you should answer everyone. Indeed, we need to have good seasoning in our speech and in our lives. One of the scholars I read really emphasized this idea of prudence when he said, and I quote, prudence is the defining characteristic of a disciple, and it manifests itself through our words. So in other words, our modern definition of salty speech probably won't cut it with our Lord and Savior. It's time now to read from verse 4. You are the light of the world. Hmm. Wow, you are the light of the world. Is Jesus talking about us? Oh, dear. However, while doing my studies, I saw a wonderful translation in what is called an amplified version of that sentence, which seems to say it much better. It declares, you are the light of Christ to the world. Yes, this puts us on the spot to become the witness to the light. After that revelation, Jesus goes on with some clarification in the rest of the, of the verses 14. A city built on a hill cannot be hid. No one, after lighting a lamp, puts it under the bush, bushel basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all in the house. How many nights, returning to pier, have Bev and I, and anyone here, not rejoiced when we caught sight of the lights of the capital city, even if it was built in a river valley? And that sweeping airport beacon, how it welcomes us home again. I'm camping. When we're there, don't we hold our lanterns up to see and be seen? When we recall Christmas Eve, which wasn't too long ago, wasn't it glorious watching this entire nave gl eventually glow as the light of the one Christ candle was spread throughout the room as each of us took that flame to our own tiny candle. 
that little annual ritual confirms to us again and again that the darkness cannot dispel the light. But even the slightest flickering flame does dispel the darkness. And what does Jesus tell us to do in verse 16? In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. Christ says it all about spreading his light. But it's at this point in the gospel we come to that difficult passage concerning the law and the prophets. Boy, did I have to study hard to try and understand it fully. These verses have always caused me to scratch my head trying to grasp them. What did Jesus say? Do not think I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. I have come not to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth pass away, not one letter, not one stroke of a letter will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Digging deep in the commentary that I found in my King James Bible, I learned that there were three divisions to ancient Jewish law. First, there was the ceremonial law that we've all heard about. It related to how Israel was to properly worship God and by which the priests actually pointed the way forward to the Christ, the Savior. That law was fulfilled in Jesus. His birth, his life, his death, and his resurrection. These laws, though, even today, show us that we also need to worship, honor, and love this God of ours. The second portion of the law dealt with civil law. It contained the statutes that were to govern the daily lives of the children of Israel. Because our modern American culture and ancient Jewish culture, as well as our societies, are so different radically, these rules can't specifically apply to us. But they do instruct us that political rules and laws are important to society and must guide a nation and even the whole world itself. Jesus showed us here too that he would live under those civil laws in his society respectfully. We must live under the laws of our society as well. Now we come to the third division of the law, moral law. It takes only one sentence to sum up these precepts. Moral law reveals the nature and will of God. Jesus followed these statutes completely. Centuries before our Savior, Isaiah, 
of our Old Testament lesson for today was railing against Jewish practices that didn't follow these rules even in his day. Isaiah's countrymen were fasting and praying and complaining that those laws were bringing them nothing. Through Isaiah's words, we hear the voice of God, and he says in verses 5 and 6 and 7, You call this a fast? A day acceptable to God? Can't you hear God saying this to, to his, his people? It is not this fast that I choose. Is not this the fast that I choose? To lose the bonds of injustice. To undo the thongs of the yoke. To let the oppressed go free. And to break every yoke. Is it not to share your bread with the hungry? And bring the homeless poor into your house? When you see the naked, to cover them? And not hide yourself from your kin. Yes, it is these moral laws that reveal the will of God that we dare not ignore. We dare not break them, for Jesus the Christ got rather harsh in his day with those who did. Here's what he said. Therefore, whoever breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So now we have the scribes and the Pharisees. Those scribes and Pharisees that we have learned to hate. But I hope we listen carefully. Those men really worked so hard trying to keep the very letter of God's law. They really did. They tried hard to be righteous and to be good. However, by Jesus' time, other rules and other poor interpretations had crept in, and those notions and practices actually destroyed the very will of God. And that's what Jesus says he has come to restore. Now, what could this real, true will of God be in our modern times? What does it mean for us? We Christians are coming soon to the fasting time of Lent. What does fasting mean? Yes, it can mean not eating, but couldn't it also mean attending worship? A bit more. Reading some new meditations to set us on our day or begin our evening to go to bed or bring in prayer more frequently? I think so. Are we fasting in Lent for ourselves to feel good, or are we doing this to help others? Are we giving up some type of food or drink and then spending that saved money in donations to those who might not have enough to eat? Are we giving up some time playing games or being on the computer to dedicate that time 
to another worthy cause? Are we giving up purchasing some bauble, some piece of clothing, or some fun item to make sure that the work here of Lutheran Memorial goes just a bit farther? Yes, we need to ask ourselves those very questions. So on this Sunday, the 5th of February, in the year of our Lord, 2023, let us go from this place to be the light of Christ, to be the salt of the earth to the world, and to fulfill with Jesus the very will of God as set forth in the law and the prophets. Amen. Amen. Let it be so.